The reading is Titus 3, verses 8 to 11. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. It's great to be with, with you all this morning and look at, at, the, at this passage together. And although it's only a short four verses, I think it's such a, an applicable and helpful passage for us in the world that we live in today. We live in a, in a divided world. We turn on our TVs, we read our news apps on our phones to find a nearly daily dose of rage and fallout. Countries at war, the latest political fallout, riots and civil unrest. And yet another polarizing issue over which groups and our friends are divided. And yet sadly we know that this division that we see in the world around us, it's not inherent to the world outside the church, but it affects us in the church as, as well. It affects our own families, our friends and friendship groups and our workplaces and us in the church as well. And many of you sitting here today will have sadly been affected by division and separation within the church and know firsthand the pain, the confusion and the upset that this can cause. And we, when we dwell on it further still, even more depressingly, we know that whenever division and disunity is allowed to manifest itself, the chronic bitterness that can be left behind can lead to people sadly walking out the church doors never to return. So people and people's faith can be affected and shaken when division becomes rampant in the church. And so we come to this passage this morning and I think Paul is going to answer our questions of how are we to live in this divided world. We've been looking through the whole book of Titus of how are we to live as Christians. And I think this morning we're going to see how are we to live as Christians in the divided world that we find ourselves in, which is not dissimilar from the church in Paul's day. And not just how are we to live, but how are we to, to act when the signs of disunity and division come knocking on the on the doors here in church itself. So let's turn to our passage this morning. We're going to see two things uh, in, our, in our passage. The first is this, God's people are to be united in doing good. God's people are to be united in doing good, followed then by God's people are to be united against division. So let's look at our first point then. God's people are to be united in doing good. That's in verse 8 that you can see in your passage there. And we'll just read it again to remind ourselves what it says. It says this, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The observant among you might notice that Dave touched on these verses last week and we're repeating them here today. Um, I was given these verses a couple of months ago by, by Dave and he sort of cheekily threw it into his sermon last week. Um, but I think, I think it's, uh, it's helpful and it's going to be helpful for us uh, to, to look at them again and go over them. Plus the sermon was written last Sunday and I can, didn't have time to change it. Um, 
So we started today's passage by, by looking back at what has come before. The saying is trustworthy, Paul says to Titus, and I want you to insist on these things. Paul wants Titus, and by extension us, to insist on these things. So we need to look back at what has come before. What does he want us to insist on? Well, verses 3 to 7, if, if you have your Bibles there, it's not on the sheet. But just before, in verses 3 to 7, he reminded us that at one time we were disobedient, foolish, living in malice and hatred against others. But, it went on to say, but when the kindness of and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. And he then went on to remind us of how he had poured out his Holy Spirit on us, giving us hope in the eternal life to come. And Paul says to Titus, this saying is trustworthy. It's to be trusted, it's to be believed. This isn't to go into the same category of things that politicians and the philosophers say. Great ideas, great plans and promises that so rarely live up to expectation. No, Paul says the gospel, it isn't like that. It's trustworthy. We can base our lives on it. Why, how, how can we, 2,000 years later, base our lives on this statement, on this gospel, when there is a sea of other worldviews and ideas out there to be chosen from? What is it about the gospel that makes it so inherently trustworthy? I believe that can only be answered by looking at Jesus and his life. Paul back in chapter 2 of Titus, when, when talking about living a controlled and holy life, it says that we are awaiting the appearing of our great God and Savior who gave himself for us. Jesus gave himself for us. Jesus, our God, came down to this world, a world, though different in time, still plagued by war, hunger, disease, and division. He came and he, he lived, he, he breathed, he ate and he drank with us. And yet, as Jesus said about himself in Mark, I came not to serve, not to be served, sorry, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And just as he himself predicted, he walked freely and consciously to the cross and gave himself up for us, taking our sin, paying the price that we deserved, so that as we heard last week at the end in verse 7, we have been justified entirely by grace and have hope in eternal life. So why is this gospel, gospel trust, trustworthy? It's trustworthy because we can point to Jesus, point to his actions and his life, his death and his resurrection, and say, look, look at what he did. Look at what he has done for me. Look at what he has done for us. This isn't just empty words that Paul speaks of here. These words can be trusted because of the depth that Jesus was willing to go to save you, to save me. And so Paul goes on and says to Titus that I want you to insist on these things. The saying, this gospel that he's been talking about, this gospel of grace, that this isn't something that the church can just agree to disagree on. It's, the, it's of core importance. It's, it's who we are as a church. It's what binds us together as a group of people. And why are we to insist on these things? Well, look down, it says, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Here we come to the main point of what Paul wants to say in this section. And it's so important that we, that we grasp this correctly. Having this gospel, 
of Jesus change our lives and and work in our hearts, it will lead inherently to us doing good works. What this does not mean and what it's so important that we realize is that this this does not mean that we ever can gain favor with God. Our good works can never help us climb up, climb up the ladder to, to get us into heaven or, or, or anything like that that we can so often confuse. And that's made so clear in verse 5, just before, where it says he saved us not because of the righteous things that we've done, not because of any good work that we can do, but because of his mercy. God loves you. God loves us on the, on the same on the days that we feel like a failure and the same on the days that we feel like our good works we're excellent. But what this passage makes so clear is that this gospel working on our lives, it will lead to us doing good works as it will transform our heart and believers in God will be careful to devote themselves, as Paul puts it, to good works. So good works are the evidence of our salvation, not the means. So what are these good works that that Paul talks about? He's given so many examples through the book of Titus itself. For example, being self-controlled, sound in faith and love, showing integrity, being subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, slandering no one, being peaceful and agreeable and always gentle. And yet throughout the book, Paul often leaves this phrase, doing good or good works, open-ended. He doesn't always define it. It appears to be more of a general statement of any act done in righteousness or love. And we all Maybe this is on purpose. We all know what a good work is. I don't think you need me to define what a good work is. If we look elsewhere in Scripture, for example, the book of Colossians in in chapter 3, again, right after Paul has reminded the people there of the gospel and what it means for their lives, in verse 12, he says, Clothe yourselves in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In truth, there are so many places in Scripture we could go to find example of good works. But in essence, a good work is is any act that helps show this world, even in part, the gospel that is at work in your own heart. So some examples of, of good works that we may see in our lives. We all have different giftings, and it will look different for everyone here. But it might be showing compassion as, as Jesus has showed compassion on us offering practical support to the person or colleague in work or here, the person in church going through tough times, being mindful of the hungry and the needy in our society and and beyond. Maybe that's through supporting our our food bank here and foundation. Maybe showing kindness, remembering that Jesus was kind to us even whenever our backs were turned against him. This means that our kindness cannot be limited only to our friends and those we are naturally attracted to, but, but those who we may not call friends. It may be through pursuing justice. Again, maybe that's through supporting IJM, who we partner with here. Maybe it's offering prayer and support to those around you. Maybe it's being patient and bearing with one another when we feel wronged or offering to serve in an area required within church or encouraging others. The point is this, we are to devote ourselves to good works. Whatever these good works may be, whatever you are gifted in, we are to devote ourselves. As our hearts are transformed by what God has done in our lives, we must be careful to devote ourselves to good works. We will with care and attention perform these works, not to gain favor with God, not to gain favor with other people, not to impress anyone in church or those around us, but because our hearts are filled 
with the love of God. And we want to show that in the way that we live our lives and show that to the world around us. And so Paul finishes this section at the end of verse 8. And he says that these things are excellent and profitable for people. God doesn't give us his laws and commands to to beat us down, to make us feel wrong, about our, bad about ourselves, but he gives us his laws and his commands because he loves us, because he, he wants what is best for us as individuals and also as a, as a community of believers in the church. If we as a church are so transformed by the gospel and devote ourselves to good works, those around us in the community around us, they, they will notice they will see the gospel and the power of the gospel to be at work here within us. And so it means when they, come to, when they come to church and they come along, though they may not know the gospel from themselves, when they hear it articulated from the front or they hear God's word spoken, they will be more receptive to hearing that gospel because they've already seen the power of it at work among us. So foundation, so church family, because of the gospel of Jesus Let's be united in doing good together. Let's look back constantly at the gospel. It's trustworthy. We can base our lives upon it. And let's insist and encourage each other in it. We never graduate from the gospel. It's always our motivation. It's always what we need to encourage us. And so let our works flow out of that knowledge and the thankfulness of what Jesus has done for us in our lives, knowing that our love in him is secure and firm. So we started our passage with a call to good works. And Paul then in the next section wants, wants to warn Titus then about a specific issue of division within the church, which leads us on then to our second point, that God's people should be united against division. Look down with me again at verses 9 to 11. There will, and it says this, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So having told us how we are to live as believers, Paul moves on here to warn Titus of how he's to deal with a specific issue of division within the church, which I think is such a timely issue for us in, in the world that we live in today. Paul tells Titus to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. What, what were these controversies, these quarrels, that were causing so much division within the Cretan church at the time that Paul was so desperate to warn Titus about? Well, the first one on the list is, is foolish controversies. So what's in, what's in view here? Does this mean that Paul is prohibiting all theological debate, all differences of opinion within the church? Does this mean that if you have a specific issue with how something is done or an issue within the church that you can't raise that? No, I think it's so important that we're clear that that is not what this means here. Remember that Jesus himself was actually fairly controversial. He created a lot of dispute with the religious leaders at the time who disagreed with about who he was and, and why he had come to earth. Not to mention Paul himself, who had written this letter, was constantly arguing and debating, for example, with the philosophers in Athens. So what Paul has in view here is not a church 
in which no debate or discussion or differences of opinion can be had. But he's warning specifically against foolish controversies, pointless quarrels, things that do not bring or add any real value. So not all controversy is banned, but all foolish controversy. And I really don't think that I need to give too many examples to see how this is so relevant for us in the church today. To me, it just seems like the world is becoming more and more divided. Every week, there appears to be a new issue which threatens to polarize people. Everything is political, whether it's vaccinations or or who to vote for. I think Paul would say to us here in the church, avoid dividing over these things. Avoid endless quarreling. Avoid going round and round in circles. The next item on Paul's list then is avoiding genealogies. He says to Titus, avoid genealogies, genealogies, family lines. And I, I should imagine that not too many of us have become divided in 2022 or embroiled in arguments over our family line. But clearly in the Cretan church at the time, there were disputes over this and people were becoming divided over these things. And we can't be exactly sure what form this division took. Back in chapter 1, verse 10 of Titus, Paul warns Titus about the circumcision group who were teaching things they shouldn't have, disrupting households, as Paul puts it, along then with the warning against quarreling about the law or the Old Testament. It shows that there was a Jewish component to these divisions that were happening within the Cretan church. And so this has led some people to speculate that the genealogies that Paul is warning Titus against, it may have been that people were looking back at their family lines, looking back at where they descended from, the tribes or the patriarchs that they came from, so that they could say that they were somehow better than those around, leading to divisions. We can't be completely sure. But whilst we can't be completely sure of each individual aspect of the controversies that were that were causing division within the church in Crete. What Paul is saying here is is quite clear. Avoid these things. Avoid pointless arguing and quarreling. Avoid them because they're unprofitable and worthless, he says. Unlike the good works that he talked about in verse 8, which were excellent and profitable for people, these arguments that people bring, that people are having within the church, they are worthless. They are causing division and bringing absolutely no good to the church. So Paul says, avoid them. We are to be united as a church in the gospel. We must, as a a group of, of believers, be firm on that. We must be firm on living a life worthy of the gospel. Yet there will inevitably be a range of other opinions on different theological matters or the way that a church is run. And opinions will be diverse within the church, and that is to be welcomed, that is normal. And so we are to be diverse, but not divided. Diverse, but not divided. The causes of these divisions and arguments in the church in 2022 that I have so often seen aren't the big theological things that you think might divide us, although that can happen. For me, the the divisions that I've so often seen are are the things that seem to matter less, like how music is run or how routes are organized or how church funds are used. And there will be differences of opinion, and that is normal and to be welcomed, and discussions will obviously happen on these things. But I think Paul would say to us in, in 2022, avoid dividing over these things. Avoid dividing over these things. 
And so he finishes this section by, by telling Titus how to deal with the person intent on stirring up division within the church. Verses 10 to 11 says, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Who do these verses have in mind then? I think they have in mind the person who is intent on living out the second half of our passage that we're looking at this morning and not the first. The language Paul uses here of, of stirring up division, this isn't a person genuinely concerned over a, a, an issue within the church. This isn't a person with a difference of opinion. This is a person engaging in a pattern of behavior that is seeking to purposefully stir up division, stoking the flame, adding fuel to the fire, causing disunity to grow and grow, leading to more and more hurt and fallout within the church. And so how do we, how do we recognize this? I think it's, it's firstly important to note that this is not simply a difference of opinion, as I've just said. A difference of opinion does not necessarily mean a person is being divisive, but it's the person who is intent on elevating their cause above all others, elevating their cause, not listening to other people's opinions, spreading it in a way that is leading to individuals or groups of people to separate and become divided and resentful of one another. I think often this person will have no real interest in the resolution of an issue, and we'll maybe go round in circles of foolish debate rather than engaging in any type of compromise. And so what is Titus to do whenever this was happening in the church in Crete? What are we to do today? Well, firstly, Paul wants us to recognize the issue. In order to warn a person, we have to first recognize that it is a problem. And then he says, go on to warn that person twice if required. Like any type of discipline that, that happens within the church, we don't really like talking about it. It's awkward to talk about. But any type of discipline that the church engages in, it, the aim has to be redemptive. The aim has to be redemptive to bring that person in to repentance for their sake and for the church's sake. They must be warned forcefully but in grace that division and fallout within the church, it brings disdain upon, yes, individuals, but it brings the stain upon the church, and by extension, that makes Jesus and his gospel look less attractive to the outside world. Which is why Paul goes on to say that painfully, after being warned once and at least twice, given time to repent on at least two occasions, if that person continues to stir up division, Paul instructs Titus and the church to have nothing more to do with that person. They are self-condemned, as Paul puts it. I think this warning shows that this isn't a rash or reactive decision, but one that is taken after much discussion, after much time given to the person, discussion between eldership and church members. And this is painful. It's not something we, we think about or talk about lightly or Paul takes lightly here. And many of you may have personal examples of individuals or people you've known where this has happened to that the church has had to remove potentially from membership because of patterns of unrepentant behavior that is bringing disdain upon Christ's church. But ultimately, if the church does not remove itself from this one divisive person, 
the conflict will find a way of growing and growing, heaping division upon division, causing bitterness to grow. And sadly, there are so many examples of, of churches that have had to close their doors because disunity was allowed to run rampant within the church, unchecked and undealt with. And so I think this is why Paul is so firm on that, on this, in this part of Scripture. And he's so firm on gospel unity and living at peace with one another, which is not something which is unique to Titus here, but so present in so many other parts of Scripture. So how are we to live in this increasingly divided and polarized world as individuals, as God's church and people? How are we to live in Jesus' church with a deep peace and unity and love for one another? Where difficulties and conflicts are bound to arise. Remember, we're all still sinners. We're saved by this gospel, but we're still sinners. So so conflict is bound to arise at times. Paul says, firstly, be united in doing good. Insist on the the trustworthy gospel. Remind yourselves of it constantly. Base your lives upon its foundation and let good works and selflessness flow out of that deep well. And he says then, be united in avoiding division. Avoid pointless arguments and controversy that threaten the peace and unity of God's people. To finish, Ephesians 4 verses 1 to 6 says this. As a prisoner for the Lord, this is Paul speaking, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So how are we to perform good works and be united here in Foundation Church? By looking at our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living in perfect love and unity within the Trinity. The Son willing to humble himself, not just to come to this earth but to be separated from the eternal bond that existed between him and the Father on the cross so that we never had to face that separation. The Spirit submitting to Christ, working on his behalf on our hearts, transforming us and pointing us to Christ and the Father, making us more like him. And as we look at our loving God, as we reflect on the grace that he has shown us and the trustworthiness of the gospel, our hearts will inevitably be transformed. We will inevitably carefully devote ourselves to living out a life of good works and of unity with one another. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this trustworthy gospel. We thank you that we can look at you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can see the love and unity that exists in you, our God. We thank you for the cross, Lord Jesus. We thank you for transforming our hearts. And Lord, we pray for our church, and we pray for the churches around us here in Belmont. Lord, we pray for a deep unity. 
a deep unity and peace to belong here in our church community and a unity for us all with the surrounding churches to be united in the gospel. Lord, please help us, remind us of what you've done for us. Transform our hearts. Help us to avoid division. Help us to avoid worthless, foolish controversies. And help us to keep our eyes fixed upon you, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.